Before we begin the episode, we'd like to acknowledge that we work, play, and learn on the unceded territories of many indigenous peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the BC Association of School Psychologists podcast. We are excited to bring you helpful ideas for your practice, supported by experts and research. This episode features a conversation with Nancy Young and is hosted by school psychologist Kathleen Cherry and myself, James Tan Liao. Nancy Young is an educational consultant providing support for educators and families across North America and globally. Her areas of specialty include dyslexia, giftedness, and ADHD. She's had many important contributions to the field, including the Ladder of Reading and Writing infographic and the book Secret Code Actions, a resource for teaching, reading, and spelling. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Hello. We, we always love to uh, hear the background story when we chat with people. And uh, we're wondering if you could share what led you to this uh, field or discipline. Well, uh, not being 25, it's kind of long. But anyhow, <laughs> I began years ago uh, in special education as an educational assistant. And uh, I actually sometimes wonder about my students thinking, oh, you know, if only I know what I know now. But anyhow, uh, my advocacy began really as a parent, uh, a parent of um, two children whose needs were not being met, but they weren't struggling to read. They were actually advanced readers. And so I think this gives me a unique perspective when it comes to uh, teaching, reading and writing. Uh, my experience with my own children led me to obtaining my BEd, and my focus was going to be gifted education. But along the way, I, um, I guess I discovered children who were, who were identified as gifted but were struggling to learn to read. And I was fascinated by this uh, situation. And so that led me into learning about the research on reading, which was on my own. I didn't get any of it during my Bachelor of Education degree, uh, but I discovered uh, the science. I love reading the research. I love exploring the science. And so I started my own practice working with children who were um, struggling and um, schools did not seem to know how to support them. And, and parents approached me for help. And some of these children were um, uh, identified as ADHD and some had been identified as gifted and ADHD and were still struggling to read. Uh, some had anxiety problems, you know, sometimes I had five different things going on, but uh, I was really, I've just always been um, intellectually intrigued by, by, um, the research and difficulty learning to read and how we how we address it in a positive way for children who struggle. And right now, uh, my focus is um, I have a consultant um, uh, consultancy business, I guess you'd call it. And I do a lot of advocacy. I'm working on my doctorate and I'm 
I've written one book and I'm working on a second book, which I can explain later. So not a lot of time for anything else, but <laughs> but I do live in BC now. I used to live, well, I've lived in five provinces, but I shifted to BC when I streamed my master's uh, about, uh, I guess it was 10 years ago. So I am in BC. I'm I don't like snow. I got tired of cold. So uh, my my recreation is really every day going out on my bike. And the rest of my life is really focused on what we're talking about today. And we so appreciate that. And so appreciate one of the tools that, that I love to use when discussing literacy. And, and that is your wonderful infographic, uh, The Ladder of Reading. It resonated with myself and with so many people. Um, could you describe for our listeners how you came to create it? Well, first of all, I have to clarify that it's now the ladder of reading and writing. Uh, so some of you, um, some of your listeners might have seen the older version. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did do a major update in uh, 2021 and added writing. I, in my mind, writing had always been there, but I wanted to make it really clear that this isn't just reading. Uh, I created it during my master's, which was at Vancouver Island University, my master's in special education. And um, one of my goals in my master's once I started was to teach people in my class about struggling readers because um, this the students were made up of uh, teachers and other um, people from the education area in BC and not everybody knew about struggling readers and dyslexia and so on. And of course, education is so wide as your audience knows. So I really tried to focus on wherever I could to teach my uh, fellow students about uh, reading. And so I created this um, infographic as part of a um, an assignment. And and I wanted to show the the ease of learning to read the continuum and I wanted to show how this ease of learning to read affects instruction and uh, that is where it all began and then right away I started to use it in my private practice when I had meetings with teachers my parents you know would show it to their teachers Um, And then it um, it was my tool. I showed it in my presentations that I did over the years. But it um, in 2017, that was when it, I guess you could call it, went viral. And um, since then, I've done a couple of updates. Um, I think one of my messages for your audience is it's okay to question. It's okay to continually grow. And so. My um, ladder of reading and writing, even the fact I put writing in, it continues to grow. I, I, the fundamentals of the tool itself have not changed in terms of how I use it in my message. What I have seen is how sometimes people misinterpret it. And so I've tried in each update to make it a little clearer. And in 2021, there was a lot put in there to to try and help educators, parents, school psychologists, um, all of this collaborative team better understand what um, the range of needs 
uh, is. Uh, it's not just struggling readers, it's actually advanced readers as well. Mm -hmm. So so it's much more detailed. So anybody who hasn't seen the revision, go onto my website and have a look. So yes, it's uh, very well known now being used across the world, uh, being used in university courses. It's, you know, it's pretty amazing. I'm sometimes, uh, you know, amazed, uh, but I'm also very honored. And so that's why I work so hard to help deliver the message so that there isn't misinterpretation. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And Nancy, you touched on the idea of struggling readers and dyslexia, and I wonder, as a follow-up question to that, uh, how would you differentiate, or maybe not at all, someone who has a learning disability in reading or dyslexia versus just a, a, a kiddo, a student who's struggling with reading? All right, so mm -hmm. let me just back up a second and, and, and just tell your audience that the older version of my ladder of reading and writing used to actually say the word dyslexia on it, and it now no longer does because I wanted to deliver the message that this isn't just about children with dyslexia. It's children with low IQ. It's children uh, who with comprehension. If you look at the definition of dyslexia, you can actually separate out comprehension disability. So the red area is children who take longer to learn to read and require very explicit instruction and lots of repetition to learn to read. Now, in the orange area on my ladder of reading and writing, that might encompass well, that would encompass those children you might have been thinking about who do not have dyslexia, but who need more steps and more repetition than other children. So the whole, the, the message in the ladder of reading and writing is that there's a continuum in learning to read and write. And within that continuum, certain children need more steps, more practice, more intentional focus on certain areas, and that's where we get into, actually, if they're in the red, you could have a child who has dyslexia who has very high vocabulary. They may have, their vocabulary may be better than their teacher in terms of, you know, use of rare words and so on. So we don't need to focus too much on vocabulary with that child, but they might need uh, phonics instruction. And so, um, that, um, that is where we uh, try to focus on what the need is within the continuum. So it's really trying to narrow down. Once you get into the area, narrow it down. So those children, and I worked with those children, and interestingly enough, some of those children in the orange area who were just having trouble learning to read, um, they came to me with the same signs, the same, you know, things written at school. But the difference was, as soon as I started to teach them, they progressed much more quickly. Mm -hmm. And they didn't need 50 repetitions. And uh, so what had happened was they had been taught 
they had really, all of them had been taught to guess. Instead of decode, those children in the orange had been taught to guess. And so once they learned the code, they just started to fly. And so that's where you get into the, um, somebody who has a reading disability, mm-hmm. even when you're teaching them to decode, it's going to require more steps, more modeling, more feedback than somebody in the orange who doesn't need all those steps, but still needs to be taught to decode, or they might look like they have dyslexia, but they don't. For sure. And I think that just brings up how important it is for when psychs, school psychs are doing their evaluations, their assessments, to make sure that we are understanding the child, the student's history, what kind of supports, how targeted they've been in terms of even teaching this code. um, In terms of before we even start to talk about diagnostic impressions. Um, thank you so much, Nancy. I appreciate that. Bit of a tangent there. Um, and well, Nancy, okay, it's important to. Sorry, I just said it's really important to find out what instruction they have received. Really oh. important to find that out. And I know it's hard sometimes. It gets a little awkward, but it's crucial. Absolutely. And Nancy, actually, on the point of giving feedback. Um, just this week, I had this parent ask about how they can best support their children who may be struggling to read, struggling to learn to write. Um, and what I'm wondering, what are some pillars of an effective intervention from your point of view? What what are some things that maybe a parent can take on as well? Okay, uh, thank you for bringing up parents. I'm a huge believer in embracing those parents uh, who want to be involved And as a parent who wanted to be involved myself uh, and was sometimes pushed away, um, I really, I understand not everybody has the inclination, not everybody has the time. But the research actually shows that there are many parents who want to be a part of the team who are not. And um, the research shows that for children who are from um, low poverty backgrounds and so on, um, school psychologists and, and teachers might have to work harder to include those parents, but they do want to be involved. They just sometimes don't know how or their situation, their work prevents them being, being involved. But sometimes there's this, um, there's this perhaps assumption that parents don't want to be involved and they do. Um, so I'm a huge believer in the team the team. Um, For parents, I think it relates to school psychologists finding out where the issues are. Explain to parents what, where the child is, is struggling, why they are struggling, and how the the challenges are going to be addressed. I don't even use that word struggling anymore. I, I try to change it into a child with challenges, uh, because struggling right away, you know, it's just got a different can- uh, connotation from, you know, we have a child with a, cha- a challenge. Um, and so um, so where are those challenges? And then to support them with effective practices at home. So if the child is learning to decode at school, can the parents 
not just be supported with um, with um, books that are aligning to the instruction at school, but I I encourage teachers and school psychologists to be a part of this collaborative effort to support the parents and what to do if the child runs into a problem with the word. You know, what a, what a, if they can't get that word, what should a parent do? And many parents just don't know what to do. And so what happens is people are doing different things. And every time for a child who has challenges, every time people change the strategies, you've just made it that much harder for the child. Right. So I, that's uh, yeah. um, yes, and you talked about effective. Was that your Kathleen? Did you want to? Oh, I just love the way you just uh, put that right down to the word level, um, which I think is so important. And also the the team being on the same page in the in the in the details as well as the the big picture. Uh, so thank you. Um, so kind of tied in with that, um, are there some things that you feel are particularly important for us to know in our work with students uh, that haven't yet been addressed? I know you've mentioned uh, many of them, but but anything we haven't touched on? Uh, I think one of you brought up um, components of an effective intervention. And uh, I tend to refer to the five components of instruction rather than the pillars of the National Reading Panel for, I, I won't get into the reasons. Well, one of them is that fluency is an outcome and not, you know, something you teach. So that, but I tend to focus on the five instructional components um, that are really supported by the science. And so these would be uh, phonology and orthography, and I'm going to right away say the research um, is really strong that we need to be teaching phonemic awareness using letters. Um, there's a lot of lot happening in the field right now, and um, there as teachers have been finding about finding out about what they are interpreting as being the science, um, there's a lot of, uh, there has been a lot of jumping on from programs that teach phonemic awareness without letters. And um, that is not supported. And there's a lot, um, I can send you a couple of links if you want, very good links explaining it. So we wanna be teaching um, letters right away. And uh, as we're teaching, sound symbol correspondences, that's basically what it is, orthography and phonology. Then we want to be teaching about morphology, and that would be uh, prefixes, suffixes, and base words. We want to be teaching about semantics, and oh, this is so much fun because uh, you get into the multiple meanings of words, and so you're touching on the vocabulary, or you're not touching, you're delving into the vocabulary that is the term used in the National Reading panel uh, but uh, semantics is 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 um, really important especially for certain children who have lower vocabulary and then syntax which um, which would include um, sentence structure and and longer um, longer writing passages that being said um, 
all of those components should be addressed as simultaneous, simultaneously as possible. So when we're decoding, we're always looking at the meaning of a word and we're putting it into a sentence. And when we're talking about, um, you know, when we're examining morphology and prefixes and suffixes and so on, we're always using it in a sentence and we're saying, oh, you know, ing, you know, that means it's a verb. So you're actually touching on syntax. You're overlapping all the time. It's not isolated. But what will happen is at different points, certain components will receive more emphasis than others at the same time as you're integrating everything. Does that make any sense? It does. And I think that ties into that um, always be um, checking and doing small measures to see what what is the piece that needs that little extra piece of uh, support uh, for that particular individual. Mm -hmm. And I think the the range of needs for school psychologists, the range of needs in classrooms and the range of needs on the my ladder reading and writing infographic shows that um, to do this, um, we have to be very intentional, very collaborative. And it's also I'm going to we have to differentiate our instruction. We cannot be delivering whole class instruction. It, it, uh, there is so much research supporting differentiation. And so the reason this relates to what you just said is that we need to move our children ahead as quickly as we can. And if moving people ahead as quickly as they can and providing them what they need if they are not ready to move ahead doesn't work. So there's uh, a lot of research supporting and, and that is a message on my infographic. We need to differentiate. We need to find what they need and provide the structure in classrooms to provide the grouping based on what they need. And I encourage school psychologists to advocate to their schools that they look at grouping not just within one classroom, but across grades and you know within grades to better serve our students and serve our teachers mm -hmm. it's um it's so important to be addressing the needs and then when you have those groupings you need to be flexible and move children around as you need and at the same time recognize that if children are, are challenged in reading that maybe when it comes to math they could be in the highest math group. So you're not boxing children into thinking they're always struggling with something that's really important for our children who are gifted and um, have uh, dyslexia. Really important that we struggle the groups. Oh, and there was one thing I wanted to say and it related to uh, when you brought it up earlier, um, school psychologists and what they're looking for needs. Um, I, um, I really encourage school psychologists with the parents to delve into strengths. What are our students' strengths? Every child has strengths. And so we want to put those um, on the record, on the IEP, um, and understand that they might their, their interests might change too. 
And so we don't want to box them in again at the same time as we want to address their strengths. And that's why this grouping, you can group differently based on strengths or interests. And we need to support teachers in how to do this. I really think this is... Um, Absolutely, Nancy. I think that's a really, really great point. I have been at a couple of um, school-based team meetings this year already where uh, teachers give, you know, when asked about the strengths, oh, the student is kind. Oh, they they try their best. And to some extent, while these are true and they should be celebrated, they can start to feel like these are just boxes that the teachers are checking off in terms of what to say. Um, and to your point, Nancy, there's so much to celebrate here. Hey, the kiddo has really learned to read these specific letters fluently or these words fluently and just getting down to the nitty gritty about what are their different successes, even within the different supports they've been receiving. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Nancy, I'm wondering, in your experience, what are some successful ways that kind of the good, a good, the best version of this reading packages look like in terms of like good reading screening, intervention, progress monitoring? Um, what are some tools that uh, are in your kit that we need to keep in our kits? <sighs> well, there's a lot of change happening right now. And so even tools that I've used are being revised and and uh, there's just a lot of conversations shall I say happening um, in terms of tools um, for decoding the 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 simplest tool that teachers can use and that's part of uh, most, if not all, psychological assessments is um, testing nonsense words. If we're testing a child's reading and we haven't tested nonsense words, then I think that is um, problematic. And that's the reason some countries, such as England, have gone with the phonics check. They're just really checking to see if the child can decode. And so some of the um, screeners right now do not check for a child's ability to decode. Um, I would say right now that the screening for phonemic awareness, based on what I'm seeing, um, is being overdone. And um, teachers have grabbed onto the phonemic awareness listening only wave. And everybody in the class is being tested for phonemic awareness to the point where developmentally, the children, the research would suggest some children wouldn't have that yet. And I can again send you some links if you like that explain this. But the other thing that um, I think it's really important for school psychologists to know is that um, um, there, there isn't much research on children who are doing well in reading. Uh, the advanced readers. And so what's happening right now is advanced readers are being tested for phonemic awareness and held back. And that, in my reading of the research and the people with whom I've discussed this with in the field, that is not supported. And uh, so I think when it comes to tools, we have to not just find good tools, but be careful that popular tools are actually being scrutinized because they might not be as effective as 
people believe. Things always go in waves in education. So I, um, I have... I watched recently a wonderful webinar given by um, Jan Hasbrook, and um, oh, the name has gone. It'll come back to me. Um, anyhow, it's a great um, it's a great webinar on uh, curriculum based assessment and on separating out what is screening, what is what is diagnostic in terms of instruction, what a psychologist would do and I think it's really important to share that type of information with teachers I think I think school psychologists you know your assessments but you're also tied into this screening for everybody conversation that's going on and so I think we just need to be careful screening um screening universal screening uh for reading, um, even some of the screeners that have been lauded, the new ones are being actually questioned. Um, and um, we need to be screening for things like ADHD because there's such an overlap with ADHD and reading, and I don't feel it's a part of the conversation as much as it should be. And um, screening for um, children who are uh, gifted. I'm going to throw it out there uh, because I've been deeply into that research recently. And so the more from it's basically the more information we have, the, the better without wanting to box children. And um, it, we want to support needs. And if we just screen for reading, we might miss something like ADHD that will impact our instruction. Um, I'm wondering um, if you have some good resources for psychologists to refer to, uh, be it theoretical, parent advocacy, or interventions. I know you mentioned one uh, wonderful webinar, um, but uh, yeah, any suggestions? Well, there are a lot of good books. I'm actually going to throw it out there and say that some of the really good books um, we'll probably re revise soon with the current change in thinking on teaching and phonemic awareness because I've gone back to some of the books that I really like and the chapters that on phonemic awareness are actually now would be considered dated. So any good book, be careful with. And I know um, that most authors, you know, you write a book and they say, oh, if only I, if only I had said that or whatever. Um, um, a book on dyslexia, Jan Hasbrook's book is really good. I, I work closely with Jan and I have so much respect for her knowledge and um, I love discussing things with her. She's so open to the new learning and, and analyzing everything. So I think her book on dyslexia, Jan and I are co-editing a book that will be out soon. I, I can't say a lot about it, but the book will be on the ladder of reading and writing, and I'm hoping it's going to be a valuable tool uh, for a wide range of audience. Um, so maybe spring. I might have more soon. I just can't say yet, but um, that will be a good source of information for people. Um, I could send you the um, the names of a couple of good books that I have written by researchers that you could consider posting uh, that uh, I have found helpful. Um, there There is a lot out there. Um, 
I have so many different books and and the more books I have the I can just kind of take things I get things it's almost like programs there's no perfect program um so the books that I have I'll go oh I'm going to read this research or what they said about this and uh, Jack Fletcher in Texas is an amazing researcher and I love to see what he he has written about assessments and even you know diagnosing dyslexia he says well different different states have different cutoffs and different people use different tests and different so how you know it's very difficult to come up with the set so that that is reassuring. I think it's important for your school psychologist to know that there's there's um, it's not as black and white as sometimes people make it out to be. But I, I'd be happy to send you uh, the names of uh, a couple of books. Yeah, absolutely. We'd appreciate that. And for our audience, for our listeners, we'll make sure we have uh, these different resources that Nancy's going to share with us in our show notes. Um, so Nancy, just to kind of wrap things up, wanted to give you this opportunity to promote any new projects uh, or topics that you are exploring. Oh, wow. Well, I guess I talked about the latter reading and writing book. Um, I have written a book on enhancing instruction using movement. It's um, it's available. On, you know, there's information on my website. It's not a program. I wrote it. Uh, I've been using movement for 20 years uh, in my in my teaching and and started using movement before I even knew about um, the science of reading because I was working with children who had ADHD and uh, there's such a lot of research on on movement but um, in my experience and based on the research that I see that um, we uh, teachers and school psychologists could consider recommending uh, for children to weave movement in. It's not taking something out, it's adding movement in to get our children out of their chairs, to move their body. And again, I don't have time to go into the research, but, uh, and it's not, I'm not saying everybody needs to move, but it's one of those things that can help children. And given 20 to 40% of children with dyslexia are thought to have ADHD, um, or, you know, it's, it's a range, it's significant. I think we need to keep in mind the, the um, other strategies that need to help focus and not just that, make it more fun. And I guess that brings me to my uh, interest in twice exceptional children and um, the intellectual engagement and the fun for children who um, are challenged in learning to read and write. And uh, not every child who is challenged in learning to read and write will um, be high IQ. You could be below IQ and have challenges. But that for those who, who are um, of higher IQ, it's really frustrating and we need to um, intervene early. That's why I say we need to screen for other things other than reading early because the social emotional baggage begins in kindergarten and um, waiting is just I, I advocate being proactive rather than reactive. And so making it fun and then making it intellectually engaging as much as we can from day one is so, so important. And those things will 
you know, other children will benefit from them too. But the intellectual engagement, I think, is sometimes left out. And then the need to move on quickly. For those children who who want to, you know, conquer uh, this reading challenge, um, we need to move them on as quickly as, as we can. And that's why using... You know, some people say, oh, 15 minutes a day, you know, won't hurt. Actually, 15 minutes a day might be delaying somebody. Thanks, Nancy. That's super insightful. Um, All right, then. We will mark the end of our episode here. Thank you again, Nancy, for your time and expertise. Uh, to our listeners, stay tuned for our next episodes. In the meantime, we'd love if you connected with us on our socials at BCASP Certified on Twitter and Instagram and BC Association of School Psychologists on Facebook. We are signing off here. Thank you. Thank you.